The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in his train, who best can drink his... Welcome to Death and Glory Podcast here at the Rasmussen Home. My name is Jordan Parks, and I am joined by my co-host, Peter Rasmussen. Death and Glory podcast exists to remind Christians to love our King, die with honor, and live with hope and perishable because Christ has been raised from the dead. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you to check out Puritan.pub. This is a digital safe haven for Christians seeking a social media alternative to big tech. It was developed by our dear brother, Aaron Schaffelwallaf, and is a great way to connect with other believers. Open your browser and go to Puritan.pub slash terms for more information. We have a special guest for you all today, Aaron Wren. He's a co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer, a uh, journal that tackles issues American Christians face from the Protestant tradition. Aaron also writes at AaronWren.com or AaronWren.substack.com and is a host of a weekly podcast, The Aaron Wren Show. Before all that, he was an urban policy researcher, writer, and a consultant working as a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. His work has been featured in publications such as the New York Times, The Guardian, and The Atlantic. And for now, for the first time ever, Death and Glory podcast. Aaron and his family reside in Indianapolis. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. One of our uh, inspirations for our show came from Philip Reeve's term. Um, he used the, the term called death works. And uh, we're exploring that term from a Christian perspective. And it seems that you know, in a lot of ways, we live in a death works culture. You know, we have abortion, child mutilation, uh, rising suicide rates are kind of a part of that. And we conclude that a nation that not only murders its children, but also denies the blessing of bearing children and establishing families is also a part of a culture that celebrates death works. Um, you've said in your podcast before that we should avoid, you know, apocalyptic thinking. And I agree. Uh, but we wanted to have you on to talk about a concerning trend happening in other parts of the world that could be making its way to the U.S. And you described this in um, your latest newsletter, Newsletter 75, uh, about post-familial society, specifically in South Korea, but some of the implications for the U.S. Could you um, just give us a quick overview of what you covered in Newsletter 75? Sure. Post-familialism is a term. It may have been invented by my friend Joel Kotkin, uh, he started writing about this in terms of East Asian societies, which, of course, includes South Korea. Uh, but it, essentially, it means people foregoing marriage and children. And what we see uh, in a country like South Korea, this is true throughout East Asia and increasingly throughout the world, is uh, large numbers of young people not getting married and extremely low fertility. So what's called the total fertility rate, which is the total number of children that a woman would have over her lifetime on average, that needs to be at a level of 2.1 in order to keep the population steady. So you need kind of two parents need to have two kids, but you need a couple, you know, a little extra because people die or there are just issues. They're now down to something like 0.76 in South Korea. It's basically the lowest fertility, you know, in, uh, in the world. So what you see there, like, let's just imagine a, um, you know, a total fertility of one, you know, in which you have, uh, you know, essentially, you know, four, 
uh, four kind of parents who each have one child, who each have one child. So you're down from like four adults down to one grandchild. And one of the consequences of something like this is that once you lose out on having a generation of kids, you basically can't replace them. There's no replacing them. So we ran into supply chain issues, right, during the pandemic or because of this Ukraine invasion. And eventually they'll they'll fire up an extra shift at the factory. Maybe we'll build more factories if we need to build more factories, right? But once your number of childbearing age people is reduced by half, as a result of a very low fertility rate, you can't just go back later and say, well, let's have more kids and build back up the population. It's not that easy. You, you know, you wiped out, you know, and essentially an entire generation of prospective parents and not just them, but all of their potential descendants on down the line. Now, of course, it's certainly possible to rebuild a, a population over time particularly if uh, fertility goes up a lot. There are countries like Israel that have managed to maintain pretty high fertility. Uh, but what we see is uh, there's a there's a rate, and maybe something like one 1.4, that demographers call lowest low fertility. And basically no society has ever come back from getting sustainably at that level. And there are a lot of countries uh, that are at that level. And so... South Korea, East Asia is the most advanced on this. And uh, this article um, uh, that I wrote, this newsletter that I wrote, was really based on a couple articles that other people wrote. One was by Scott Yenner in First Things Magazine. Uh, excellent article. Uh, you should put a link to, put a link to this stuff in the show notes. Um, sure. And then the, another one was in The Atlantic. And, you know, Yenner makes the point that, like, you know, young people in South Korea are not getting married and they're not having kids. But he sort of goes against some conventional explanations. He's like, look, it's not because they all got liberal. He says South Korea is still a very conservative society. For example, there's extremely low out of wedlock birth rates in South Korea. So you might look at some places in Europe, say Scandinavia, and say, look, our marriage rate's very, very low, but people are having babies and they're sort of together, but they didn't get married. And, you know, they're still having some kids. Uh, although even Scandinavia is starting to fall, but like there, they, they don't have the out of wedlock, you know, birth rate issue. They are more or less the country does not approve of gay marriage. So this is a place that's somewhat socially conservative, which is what we tend to stereotype as, you know, have lots of kids, you know, the, the uh, Orthodox Jewish family or, you know, the Amish or some Christian homeschooling family with eight kids. And, um, guilty. But guilty. Any, yeah, so you, you you know, but the reality is very conservative society in many ways. And um he basically uh he talks Yenner talks about basically how the military dictatorship of South Korea back in probably starting in the 60s really made a concerted effort in conjunction with US NGOs and foundations to promote population control uh because they felt that if they could uh really really reduce the birth rate then they could gain a, you know, a demographic dividend for that because the fewer kids you have, you can spend less time building schools, less time caring for people who are not productive in the economy, and your working age population goes up a lot. The share of your population that's devoted to working age people who can, you can put that money into ship built shipyards, you can put that money into chip plants, and so when you 
when your fertility initially falls, you get this huge demographic dividend because you're spending a lot of money on kids who, you know, to, to take care of them, but they're not productive. And so you essentially, you know, reduce the dependency ratio. You have fewer people that are non-productive and you have a lot more people who are productive, that is to say working. And generally when, when these demographic shifts happen, it happens in a relatively young population. So it, you don't typically have a lot of old people around when this stuff happens either. So they really wanted to promote this in order to, to you know, boost the economy, part of an economic transformation strategy. And so <clears throat> uh, this happened really quite apart from feminism or any sort of liberalization. And, uh, you know, Yenner makes the provocative argument that in South Korea, feminism is the result, not the cause of declining childbirths. And this other article was in the Atlantic. And, you know, I think I linked to some others because there's been a lot being written about um, uh, this, basically about how men and women uh, have really turned on each other. And Yenner, Yenner goes after this, too. He's like, look, there are, there are no racial minorities in South Korea. There's no immigration to South Korea. It's basically an, an ethno state, very ethnically homogenous. Right. They they don't have the traditional cleavages, religious cleavages, and other things that might <clears throat> might cause problems in other countries. So the the division has been has been on gender. <clears throat> so even in the last election, where the conservative candidate uh, uh, won, uh, some people in the West called it the incel election, and it's basically all these men who are unhappy about feminism. Uh, you know, kind of very anti-feminist, support this guy. And then there's like the women now who are like uh, saying, well, we're never going to get married. We're never going to deal with these clowns. And so essentially there's very toxic gender relationships um, in, in South Korea. Uh, and so what we're seeing is uh, a lot less people getting married. And especially when there's, you know, you don't have the out of wedlock births. There's not a lot of this like single mother by choice or other issues, things happening there. Birth rates have plummeted to the lowest in the world, and South Korea really wants to turn this around because they know they've got a problem, mm -hmm. uh, and they've spent something like $150 billion trying, much like a lot of other places have tried. Uh, but what they've discovered is it's a lot easier to convince people to stop having kids than it is to start having kids. There are only a handful of places in the world that have ever successfully uh, raised their birth rate. And so... uh you know, that's basically what I wrote about. I, I kind of went through some of these articles. They're very good. You should check them out. And again, the trends, the, for some reason, East Asia, which East Asia is South Korea, North Korea, China, and of course, the, uh, you know, it's Hong Kong and Singapore and also Japan. So that's basically the East Asian countries. Very advanced on, you know, post-familialism, birth rate declines. China, you know, they had the one child policy. They also had the same issue. We're going to get down our population. Now they're like, uh oh, we try to reverse gears. So they're like, let's eliminate that. Let's start encouraging people to have kids, but people are not having kids. Uh, but you, you know, uh, they falling fertility is a global phenomenon. You know, you go to places you stereotype as having tons of kids, like Iran, birth rates are way down in Iran. Birth rates are plummeting in Africa. Birth rates are declining in India. Birth rates are declining everywhere. Birth rates are really declining in Mexico, uh, for example. I think Mexico is now sub-replacement rate. And so some of these places, you know, for example, migration to the United States, somewhat driven by demographic pressures, is suddenly going to ease up as these places uh, have fewer kids. And so we're seeing it, and we're starting to see it here. Uh, and uh, it's it's a big problem. 
uh, for society. I think it's increasingly recognized as a problem, even if people, there's still a lot of controversy on it. So that's sort of one aspect of, um, uh, of what it means to become like a post-familial society. And again, we see it here. Um, you know, I'm Generation X. And if you look at Generation X women, they generally got married. I think by age 40, uh, you know, my generation, uh, women of my generation, like all but 12% of them had gotten married. Well, now you're looking at them. So a lot of the millennials are looking at 25, 30% never married. And, wow. you know, they could, they could hook up. You know, they're not at the, some of the millennials are over 40, but like they could get married late. But what's happening is there's this bulge, large bulge of never married percolating through their 30s. And are they going to get married or are we going to end up in a situation like they have in East Asia, you know, where a quarter to a third of the population never marries? And, uh, you know, so I think we're we're heading towards a scenario here and in other countries where we have large numbers of people who are single, never married, no kids. And that is basically what it means to have essentially a post familial society. And I, um, you know. I'm a little bit of an example of this. Um, you know, I'm married, but you know, I, uh, I had my first child at age 47 and we were not able to have any more kids. And so there you go, right? We're, we're a one right at best right now. And so, you know, we, and that's what that's, so I'm not post familial, but like these trends impacted on me, you know, as a result of the way I, you know, I live my life. And so I always tell people, don't do what I did. <laughs> <laughs> do something else. I might be, I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do, but don't do what I did. Sure. So you mentioned, uh, well, just now, and in, in, in the article, that uh, much of South Korea's introduction to this came from the militarized government. In our context, American context, what do you think the the genesis of that is? Is it um, is it the collapse of like nuclear family? Is it postmodernism? Is it you know Christianity kind of falling by the wayside? What do you think that is? Well, step back from the United States for a second. Globally, one of the things that is very associated with fertility declines is female literacy. And so, Interesting. you know, in Africa, like when women learn to read, they have fewer kids. Hmm. And so uh, there is sort of a, a little bit of an inverse relationship, it seems, between education and having kids. That's not that's not the case. In the U.S., the highest educated, their highest income people, at least, tend to have more kids. But um Though there is a there is a relationship between education, particularly in places where you know there's not basic literacy in that, so that's been one of the drivers um, of it. I would say uh, technology is another. Contraception um, is obviously uh, something that uh, was not available <laughs> uh, until until recently, and so you know contraception certainly has it. And then you can essentially say abortion is a technological slash legal. Uh, as well, uh, you know, intervention as well, you know, that had something to do with it. Um, you know, I'd also say that, you know, children went from, you know, basically, <clears throat> you know, an asset to a cost in kind of industrial society. You know, when you had an agrarian sure. society, you needed kids to, you know, to help work around the house. They were economically productive and they were also your, your safety net in your old age. Mm-hmm. And they were the safety nets for each other. You know, before government safety nets, you know, your extended family was a big part of uh, taking care of each, you know, taking care of each other when you're sick and all this stuff. 
you know, now we have government safety nets, we have social security, we've got lots of things like that. We're not as dependent on family anymore. And it's expensive to have a kid. It costs a ton of money to have a kid, especially if you have a stay-at-home mom. If you have a mom that just stays home for five years until the kid starts school, you know, you're easily, you know, for a college-educated woman, you know, you're looking at, you know, $250,000 minimum, easily over half a million dollars just in lost income, opportunity cost of not working. Right. You know, it's it's kind of like insane right there. And then you got to you know, send them to kids. And of course, the expectations, you're going to spend all this money. You're going to be ferrying them around everywhere. It is a, it is quite different from when, you know, even in the 80s, you know, in 70s, when I was a kid, it's like, go out and play or go play with your friends. You know, now it's a lot different. And, you know, the, you know, and, and oh, you got to, you know, college is so much more expensive. Or maybe you need to do high, private school or maybe you need to homeschool, which is a big investment. And so I do think we have to recognize that children are costly. And then, you know, another thing I would say, uh, and, and I've seen this in my own life, you know, because I was childless for a long time. And, you know, when I, when I was in my, so let's say I'm 30. And at age 30, I basically was pretty militantly like, I never want to have kids. And I looked around and I said, what happens when you have a kid? One, your your life is proverbially over. Uh, you know, you don't get to go out and do all the fun things. I'm not going to concerts anymore. I'm not going to go out to restaurants. I'm like, that's like, gonna, I'm not going to do that. That's going to be, you know, that's going to be, uh, you know, kind of cramp my style a little bit. I, you know, it's going to cost that. It's going to be a lot of money. It's going to be expensive. I'm not going to get a lot of sleep. You know, there's all that. And then, you know, my neighbors across the hall, and this was a, you know, maybe when I was like 34. I may have been older when they actually had the kid, but they moved in. We moved in across the hall, like when I was 33, 34. Had these neighbors, they had an awesome condo across the hall. Kids, so I stuck over there. It looked like a bomb went off in that place. <laughs> and it's like, he's like, it's not a museum anymore. I'm like, man, I like having a clean house. I like this. Having a kid is going to be a disaster. And you know what? Every single thing, uh, every single downside I thought of uh, having kids actually was true. I was not exaggerating the extent to which those things were going to happen. And so I think, you know, when you don't have an actual kid that you love and it's your kid, I mean, it's just like you just have that that love for your kid that like you don't care about that stuff anymore. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say you don't care about it, but like you gain so much more than you lose. Um, you know, there's a, a quip I heard one time, like having kids makes life 10 times harder and 100 times better. Yeah, but when you're when you're young and you're living in the big city and you have a nice job and you're having a lot of fun, which, by the way, it's a lot easier to have fun. We didn't have avocado toast when I graduated from college. You know, we didn't, um, you know, uh, Starbucks was literally just arrived in Chicago. You know, people weren't like, you know, going out for these craft cocktails all the time. I and mean, we just it just wasn't as until essentially the 1990s in America. Even the rich people had trouble consuming. <laughs> they kind of ate the same food. So like now it's like, it's crazy. You have a great lifestyle. And, and but you, you know, you know what you're going to give up very tangibly. You know what you're going to give up, but you really can't relate to what you're going to gain right. from that. And then secondly, uh, I mean, I, I'm sort of, I, I can't like attest it. You know, the literacy thing is like pretty well established, uh, you know, scientific. Now I'm getting a little more speculative. 
I think the other thing is until you're about 35, you really cannot emotionally connect to the story arc of your life in the future. So let me, let me me tell you what I mean by that. So when I was 16 years old, I remember riding with my dad in a car and I, I was in control of the radio station. And so I turned on like the top 40 station or something and a song came on and it was like very, very popular song. And my dad's like, Oh, what's that? I've never heard that one before. And I'm like, how is it possible that like my dad does not know what the number one song is in the country? I mean, I can understand that Maybe he doesn't like that style of music or he's not into that, but how could he not know that? I just couldn't even imagine it. Well, of course, it's been years since I could have told you, well, I got one, even one popular pop song, right? <laughs> and so I was, uh, I, you know, if you get to be like, let's say you graduate from college, you're 22 years old. You're like, man, I have grown and I have changed so much in the last four years. You know how much you've changed, how much you've grown. But what you cannot do is understand that you will keep changing. In four years from age 22, when you're 26, you're going to be looking back at 22 saying, wow, how much I've grown, how much I've changed. Once you get to be about 35, that changes. And you can start to think about the future story arc of your life, and you can connect to it. And this gets to the death theme. You can connect to it in a way that you couldn't connect to it before. So, for example, you know, my grandfather died when I was probably in my mid, you know, slightly before age 35, something like that, 33. And I went to the hospital and I was sad and all that. And then he died. And then a few years later, um, you know, it was Christmas and uh, uh, my grandmother got sick and she had to go in the hospital. And so my, my aunt and uncle in Chicago, we, we, we were all going to go out for Chinese on Christmas. That was going to be our, uh, you know, our Christmas. But we all said that, no, we went down. We drove back to the old country, as it were. We drove back to southern Indiana so we could all take turns staying with my grandmother in the hospital. So there was always somebody there. And I'm staying with my grandmother in the hospital. And for the very first time in my life, I've been in a lot of hospitals. You know, I've been to a lot of funerals. For the very first time in my life, I said to myself, wait a minute. When I'm 93 years old, who's going to come see me in the hospital? Right. Whoa. <laughs> and, you know, that's when you're 28. You know you're going to be old. Like, you, you can intellectually understand I'm going to get old. But what you can't relate to is, like, you can't you can't really connect to it. And, like, all of a sudden, around age 35, the future starts to get real. Okay. And you can say, wait a minute. Uh, and I think this is partially related to the midlife crisis. Okay. The midlife crisis comes somewhat from this. It comes from the fact that our career starts to peak a little bit. We're not like, you know, we're kind of reaching our limits a little bit in life in that 20, 35 to 45. But people start thinking about that. And so this is what happens. A lot of people like me, I'll never want to have kids. When I'm 30, I'm saying I never want to have kids. But then you think about, wait a minute. I didn't, I couldn't relate to the fact that, Hey, Aaron, when you're 40, you're going to think differently than you think right now. And so people make decisions with incredibly long-term consequences during a time in their life when they really cannot relate to those long-term consequences emotionally. They can't do it. And so it's very easy to say, I don't want to have kids. But again, at 35, 
you are already in the red zone for not having kids. I mean, if you're married or whatever, and like female fertility is already in a far advanced decline by age 35. And, um, you know, so I'm not saying you can't do it. I think my wife was 36 when we got married and our son was born nine months and one day after we got married. Uh, but you know, it doesn't always work out. And again, we did not, we did not have other kids. And so, you know, that's the reality is I think a lot of times by the time people wake up and start thinking about the long term ramifications of being childless. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm very cognizant of the short term cost of having kids. I didn't realize, wait, I'm going to die alone. There's going to be nobody visiting me in the hospital. And you can think through all these things and, um, wow. But by the time you realize that, by the time you connect to that, it's too, almost too late. And so, um, you know, now I, now I do think that like what's going to happen is we have large numbers of people who, who are uh, single. We're going to, we're going to come up with new sorts of ways to, you know, we're going to come up with like different living arrangements and different social service arrangements. We're not going to, it's not going to be as terrible or as bleak as people think most likely. But I think that, you know, that happens to people that they're young. And of course the script, I mean, here's another one. The life script is what they now call the capstone marriage. You don't get married until you have the job, until you go to college, until you get the job, until you've built professional success, until you've traveled until you've enjoyed life in the city. And then once you've checked all the boxes, then you get married. It's the capstone to your early adulthood life. So you're in your 30s sometime, right, when it happens. And so you put this all together, and it's very easy to uh, fail to land the plane. It's very easy to fail to land the plane. And, um, you know, you don't you don't realize. A lot of, peop- a lot of people just don't realize. So, for example, I, you know... Um, I don't get too far afield here, uh, but you know, when this is this is all backed up by scientific research on dating sites, for example. So what I'm telling you, so sort of a directional theme, but it, it, there is some research behind this that you know it, you'll see you're, you're a woman and this man are in their early 20s. Well, generally speaking, the balance of power favors the woman. She's got a lot of men who are interested in her. Uh, well, as you get to age 30, that starts to reverse. And all of a sudden, you know, and especially at age 35, the level of interest that women receive from men goes down precipitously. Uh, and like, I think a lot of people are not prepared for that. They're not expecting that. And so, uh, you know, a lot of things like that start hitting you and you don't know what's coming in life. And back in the day, what did we have? We had parents and we had grandparents and we had people like that. The sort of, they, you know, they knew, they, they had seen life. Your grandparents had seen what life is like. Your parents been around, like, they're pressuring you better get married. You know, you guys better get married. They're pressuring people. And they're like, now they're pressuring people to get married, you know, <laughs> but uh, they're also putting a lot of parameters around the kind of person you might want to get married to, right? You might not want to get married to this, like, quote unquote, sexy guy with the hot car, but like, who's kind of a juvenile delinquent and is going nowhere in life. You might want to avoid that guy and just marry like a guy who like has it together. So they got all these things, you know, and like, and now we, of course we can't abide the fact that anybody would tell us what to do. You know, none of the young people want to hear from their parents. And I'd be like, Oh, why did they tell me that? So the guardrails are gone. These people don't know what they're getting in. They do. They literally don't know the road they're driving down. 
by the time they get a picture of this road, it's not good. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that's what I think, like, you know, I tell people, actually, I don't know if I've used this particular line, but I've used a variation on it. You know, when you're, let's say you're 40 and single, okay? Well, if you're 40 and single, you know, you could get married, but chances are you're not going to have kids. It's certainly easier to have kids if you're a man. I had a, kid, a child at 47, but let's be honest, like your your odds are even not so great there. And, you know, you know, you're, 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 you're you know, even for the man to be an advanced age, it increases all sorts of risk, all this stuff. So at age 40, you've been single for 20 years. Okay. Well, you likely have more than 40 years left of life to be single. I mean, when thinking about that, so you're only one third through your life. But most of the fun from being singles happens in your 20s and in your early 30s. I mean, by the time you're in your 40s, it's like when you've had the 15,000th piece of avocado toast and all that's so like, you know, and, you know, how many more crap? And I still enjoy like stuff like that, but like the idea, you don't get as much pleasure out of the, out of going out and doing things like that as you used to because you've done it. It's the law of diminishing marginal utility. And so, you know, you've already basically gone through the fun phase of being single. You're only a third through your adult life, and the last two-thirds are still there. And it's like you think it's bad being 40 and single. Think about being 50, 60, 70, 80. Think about that. Yeah. Uh, And um, so I think there's a lot of things people don't, You know, people don't, again, they do not understand the long ramifications of what they are doing. And there's even some proverbs about that. It's, uh, this, the, the man who goes into a prostitute or something like that. He's like a young bird lacking sense. He does not know it will cost him his life. And that is basically sort of what happens there. People do not know what the true long-term consequences of what they are doing are going to be. Yeah. I think that's, that's some profound stuff there. Shifting gears a little bit. I mean, you mentioned some of the stuff that kind of goes along with cities and we kind of tend to associate this with cities. Although I think if you look at across the U S the, you know, total fertility rate is still not great, even in the Midwest and kind of the rural areas. But today, I think you, if I remember correctly on your Substack, you uh, you wrote about kind of the the death of cities being overblown a little bit, and you know the media is trying to make a big deal about it because there's a lot of violence and stuff like that. Um, what do you see the effects of post familialism being on a city? You know, what's the fallout from that? Yeah, well, you know, cities. There were always a lot of kids and a lot of families in the city. I mean, in these, you know, a lot of these places, like say the Lower East Side of New York, just unbelievably overcrowded with families. You know, one bedroom apartment in a tenement building with you know nine kids and all this stuff. And you know, sort of what happened was, um, you know, with suburbanization, families left the city because you mean I can get a house. And when you think about the early suburbs, like the 40s, early, you know, the late 40s, early 50s suburbs, like the Levittowns, those were not great houses, okay? A Levittown house was sort of like a little Cape Cod, 1,100 square feet, you know, two bedrooms or three bedrooms, one bathroom, you know, kind of a starter home, a worker cottage, a bungalow, whatever they call These were small houses. They were not big houses. But it was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing, you know? And so people didn't want to stay in dirty, crowded city areas. And a lot of, you know, a lot of apartments in cities and how, you know, housing in cities 
is not conducive to having a lot of kids. So not every city is like that. So New York City, where I lived for five years, you know, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment. And we had our son. We were there. So we're in a, we're in a one-bedroom apartment with our son. And, like, we cannot afford a two-bedroom apartment. You know, and so there are people who have two kids who are teenagers and are still living in a one-bedroom apartment. And so you start looking at the cost of having kids in an urban environment. And you start looking at, like, the cost of sending kids to private schools because the schools are problems. You know, it's really an environment that is not conducive to having kids uh, and and staying there long term. Now, you know, New York is unusual in that regard. So, I, you know, I live in Indianapolis today. In Indianapolis, most of the city is single family homes. So you can buy a single family house in the city. We rented a single family home essentially a mile from the dead center of town. And so there are in some places like any there are there are it's going to be that there's going to be more kids in the city probably because we have the housing typology for it. And that's so a lot of a lot of cities are more like Indianapolis than New York. Sure. But you do get into these big coastal cities. They're very expensive. They're very small places to live. Uh, the schools aren't great. Uh, and so you end up with San Francisco, which famously has more dogs than kids. And San Francisco has the lowest share of its population under 18 of any major city in the country. And so a lot of these cities, particularly in the more gentrified precincts, are just overwhelmingly singles. Oh, you know, overwhelmingly people without kids. And, you know, unless you have a ton of money, you end up, you know, not staying. And then, of course, when you have a population that, you know, in school age and school age populations in places like Chicago, they're, they're dropping. So you can't say, well, it's just the rich people who don't have the kids. Well, you know, in a lot of places, it's like you know, the school age population just flat out dropping everywhere. But, uh, you know, even, you know, so then you get a place like San Francisco with a lot of single people and a lot of single people, single people in these cities. And they're very vocal and their policy preferences are for things that, you know, frankly, are not the family policy preference. Every city in America now is just saturated with pot smoke. You walk down the street and it's like pot everywhere. Who wants to take their kids? Who wants their kids to grow up surrounded by clouds of pot? You know, things like safety and, you know, disorder matter a lot to families. You don't want your kids exposed to some schizophrenic guy who's very unstable, who might just, you know, attack them or something like that. Mm. And so, and, and of course, you know, there, you know, you don't want a lot of loud noise late at night. There's a lot of things that you don't want when you have a family that you either don't mind or you actively do want when you're a young single. And those people dominate the discussion. And so, you know, virtually all of the discussions, uh, you know, around cities are like, basically, how can we do more to, to provide housing for these single people that they can afford? Very, very little goes into thinking about how to make cities livable uh, for families. So I, I think, you know, in general, you know, the suburbs are certainly going to remain the uh, the family type. And I think the longer you're in the city, uh, the more likely it is that you end up, you know, not having kids. This is the case in New York City. And, um, you know, for example, you know, let's take Tim Keller's Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. You know, he's a super famous pastor, super successful church, mega church with like 5,000 people. And basically, as near as I can tell from things that he said and put in his different books, from, you know, the time he founded it 
till, you know, a couple of years ago or, you know, late, late 2010s, it's never been less than 70% single. Wow. And so think about that. This is like, you know, there's something about that that's like not right. It's one thing to know, mm-hmm. hey, we're always going to have more singles because we're in New York, but like we're all staying single. And it's a famously toxic kind of dating environment. And there are a lot of people who've gone there that ended up not getting married huh. and they sort of missed their runway. They stayed in New, long, uh, New York too long. The, the granddaddy of all the leaving New York essays. And there's, it's like a whole genre of people kind of like, here's why I left New York. But the, but the kind of the, the first one of them that I'm aware of is by Joan Didion. It's called Goodbye to All That. I think she wrote it in the 60s when she was moving back to California. And uh, she talked about hanging out at parties and like, she says, it's it's like walking in the revolving door and coming out the other side eight years older, still doing all the same things. And she made this line, it says, I knew, I know now what I did not know then, which is that it is entirely possible to stay too long at the fair. And it is, that was a such a great line because it's true. It's possible to stay too long at the fair, to stay and force yourself to stay in this environment when you probably should get out, (laughs) you know? And, um, you know, if we'd stayed in New York, of course, I was still married and had a kid, man, we would have really subjected ourselves to enormous financial and other stresses as a result of doing that. And as much as I love New York City, and if I had unlimited money, I would split my time between Indianapolis and New York. I love being here. Um, I wouldn't leave it if I had a billion dollars. But I have an apartment in New York, too. But absolutely, leaving was the right decision. And so sometimes people go to these environments where it's like, you know, all the dating shows, you know, Sex in the City, Girls, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. It's like they're all there because it's like famously difficult to like meet someone in New York. You stay too long there, boom. But a lot of these cities uh, are sort of inhibitory by their very nature of, um, you know, getting married and uh, and all those things. Not to say that it's a panacea to go anywhere else. You come to Indianapolis, you know, when you're in your mid-30s and you're single, everybody's already married. So then where do you, you know? Right. So it's like, you know, there's problems everywhere you go. But I do think that, um, I do think that cities and family life, it's no longer what it once was. Sure. Um, I, I would say. Um, and, you know, and yes, you know, to the extent that there are a lot of kids in these cities too, a lot of them just like immigrant families, you know, they come here and they have little kids, but like, first off, immigrant fertility falls off fast after the first generation. So like they, you know, immigrants converge to the U.S. norm. It's not like people come here from high fertility countries and three generations in, they're still having a lot of kids. That sure. doesn't happen. Secondly, immigrants come here for the American dream. And the American dream is a house with a white picket fence in the suburbs. Okay. Immigrants go to the suburbs when they when they move up the ladder. This idea that they're all going to stay in the city, that's not why they came here. <laughs> they're like, you know, I was I was I was actually chatting with my wife about this today and like, you know, this idea of oh, I want to live in a walkable neighborhood. They're like, yeah, you know, a lot of immigrants come here. It's like, that's what I wanted to get away from. You know, was this place where it was boring. We had to walk everywhere. And I want to have a house and a car. And I want to drive to a big fat grocery store and load up my cart and go to Costco. And like, this is the American dream, right? This is what people came here for. They came here for the American dream. They didn't come here to live in a micro apartment in a city. 
you know, or to, or to have to walk everywhere. You know, they could have they could have stayed home and had that, you know, in, in a sense. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think that ultimately, you know, even even the uh, in, you know immigration is not a long term uh, solution to repopulating cities with kids because you know their fertility falls and they want to move out. Aaron, you're known for your work on the the three worlds of evangelicalism, positive, neutral, negative. Would you say that post familiar post I can't even say the word post familialism is a is like a direct result from a negative world? No, I think that uh, post familialism is a is sort of a secular trend that's a as they say orthogonal to uh, the faith issue a little bit. It's probably not totally. Correct. I mean, there is probably a sense in which religious people do want to have more kids. You know, they have sort of um, different motivations and things of that. But in terms of the three worlds model and sort of the status of Christianity, the fact that, you know, society has turned a little bit negative towards Christianity. I don't think that that's had a major impact on on post-familialism. In fact, you know, one of the things I argue is that, you know, the church is sort of embracing post-familialism. You're right. Um, yeah. You know, it's like there's a lot of single people in the pews now. And, you know, especially like an older single women, these pastors are terrified of making them mad or making them feel bad or anything that gets them upset. Like you simply cannot, you know, get make the women in your pews be upset. And there are plenty of single men, too. But, you know, you can you can easily you can get you can get away with offending the men a lot more. It's what Martin sure. Driscoll used to do. But um I think this, there's a lot more single people. It is a pastoral challenge. So that's a legitimate pastoral challenge. Let's not undersell that. But I think one of the responses to it is essentially uh, trying to come up with a theological justification for why it's okay to be single. You know, we'll talk here about the gift of singleness. We'll hear about the idolatry of the family. I mean, we are not a society that is exhibiting the idolatry of the family. Um, and so I, I really feel that the church's embrace of post-familialism is deeply unhealthy. It's sort of an example of being conformed to the world. It's very clear that the normative pattern of human life is married marriage with kids, right? That is, um, that is something we see from Genesis. It's not good for man to be alone. And it really takes the man and the woman together to fulfill the creation mandate as laid out. And of course, all these other issues I talked about that, that just, just get you if you're, if you're single. And, um, you know, not, not that marriage is a panacea. There's divorce, there's all kinds of issues, right? You know, a married life of kids, kids are hard. Okay. There's no doubt about that. Um, but, you know, I think they're selling out the futures. Uh, of the single people in their pew, their pews, to be quite honest. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a remarkable lack of, of, um, uh, of honesty and transparency. Um, you know, for example, there was a very famous cover story. I think it was a cover story in the Atlantic by a woman named Lori Gottlieb. And it was called Marry Him, The Case for Settling or something like that. And she's someone who is like a single mother by choice who is like 40, like about 40 ish. And she'd been, I was single. And I had to have this like kid by myself. And let me tell you something, ladies, you don't want to end up like me. Let me tell you why you should be settling. You should be getting married and not holding out like I held out and all this stuff. And, you know, she's Jewish. 
And I'm like, why aren't there, you know, Christian women who are like that honest? Right. Uh, and, and, and kind of given the, the straight unvarnished kind of take, you don't, you don't see it, uh, not nearly as much. And, um, so I, I, um, you know, I do think there's sort of like people are sort of, and it's sort of presented, you know, I don't want to say that this is an explicit teaching, but this is something that I've noticed certainly in the urban church world is that it has a sort of Buddhist inflection to it. And here's what I mean by that. Anything that you want, that if you don't get it, it makes you upset, is almost by definition an idol. You wanted to have kids, and you didn't have kids, and you're very upset about that. Maybe you maybe you made an idol out of having kids. Hmm. And so, of course, though, what, what I call this Buddhist inflected, because the way to avoid idolatry the way to avoid being upset is to essentially purge yourself of any desires, purging yourself of desires. Oh, you wanted to get into Stanford and you didn't get into Stanford. And now you're upset. You're really tore up about not getting into the college. You went, well, you must've made an idol out of Stanford. And this is like basically the mood I think of it. And so I think there has been a sense in which these women have been gaslit into not being able to be honest uh, about it. They always have to sort of end on a high note. Well, then I remembered that the family of God is the true family. And I remembered the gospel and like, you know, uh, I don't, I don't think it is. I mean, like, and I've, you know, there's been some stuff that's like, uh, that I think has been more, I'm not saying it's all this way. Um, you know, this woman named Gina D'Alfonso, she's written a lot about being single for Christianity today and other publications. She wrote about like making a will or something. And she's like, I have all these possessions that have such significance to me, and I would love to have been able to like give these rings to my daughter, but I don't have anybody to pass myself onto. Basically, it's like myself, these these bits of me onto, and like, what do I do when you make a will and you don't have any kids, and like the emotional resonance that that happens, and you know, I think the reality is, you know, having you know. Uh, the reality is your kids are probably not going to want your stuff <laughs> when most of us don't have a lot of heirlooms, you know, I, I you know, so, but so the reality is it's like, I'm, I'm sitting, uh, we're sitting with an entire uh, sunroom full of like my wife's grandmother's furniture that, you know, she sort of got like, what am I going to do with this stuff? But at the end of the day though, it it is the sense in which it's not about the stuff or like what your kids really want the stuff. Cause it's not their style or whatever, you know, all that, but like, it is this idea of like, the people who will remember and care about me won't, there won't be there when I'm gone. It's like, I'm going to be gone. And I thought that was a very honest thing to write and things like that. And I think we need more real talk like that and a lot less about, Oh, you know, it's perfectly okay to be single in the Christian life. And Paul even says it's better to be single. And, you know, God must not have had, you know, this, you know, for me. And I just, I don't, I think it's, you know, one thing I love about the Bible is how real it is. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. A lot of the Psalms are people who are very upset about things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's okay, uh, to be, uh, upset when something that primal, um, happens. And so we need to, I think we need to stop trying to put this gloss on it and start having more real talk and start having more people think about that. I mean, maybe there should be a set of exercises that we just give people, you know, when they turn 30, it's like, okay. You got to make a will. You know, you're single and you don't have any kids. You got to make a will. What are you going to do? Yeah. Think about that. That's a good point. 
you're 85 and you have to go in the hospital. How's that going to play out? You know, people don't think about that stuff, you know? Um, and, uh, and so I, I think that the church is really, really, I think they're selling out the future uh, of these people. And we should not be embracing this post-familial vision. I mean, I do think it's clearly the case uh, that we need to be a great place for people who are single and who, for whatever reason, didn't get married. And, and there, there's, again, there's pastoral concerns that are legitimate. But this sort of theological redefinition, singleness is just as good as that. And in fact, you know, the, our, our good friends, the Church of England, uh, recently put out a document that, uh, you know, they created this committee to study the future of the family. And it's like, we should celebrate singleness. And it, basically, it's like, singleness is now the next alternative lifestyle that we're going to praise. And since we sort of like pushed marriage and family off to the periphery. And it's all about, you know, also by choice. They talk about, you know, oh, it's by choice. Some people are choosing to be single. Uh, and, you know, it's like, it's not just like that it was a tragic, this tragic, I'm, a, I'm now a widow or something. And I ended up single through like some bad circumstances. Like, no, we should have celebrate people who chose to be single. And, um, and so it's a very much a complete normalization of uh, post-familialism. And obviously it's the Church of England. Uh, but, you know, it happens, um, you know, it's happening in, in kind of the American evangelical church as well. I think it's very unhealthy. As I always like to say, the pastors who are talking about the gift of singleness and the idolatry of the family, they're not giving up their own family for all the gold in Fort Knox. Right. right. And, uh, and again, I, that's the other thing. It's like these pastors, um, overwhelmingly pastors are married. They're relatively, it's unusual to have a single pastor. I, I, I can't remember the Barna stat, but it was something like nine, over 90%, some crazy high percentage of pastors are married. My observation is they tended to get married young. They probably didn't do a whole lot of dating before they got married. They have kids, often a lot of kids. So like they have absolutely no clue what it's like to be a single person in America today. Particularly in their thirties, what does it mean to be a thirty-seven-year-old woman or man and be single in America or, or forty-three? They don't know. They don't know. They've never experienced that. They got married young. You know, they got married young, and so I think there's like they're ill-equipped to really get it, uh, uh, kind of on this stuff. And that's what that's what I would say. And um, so it's it's not going it's not going the right direction in the church, in my view. Uh, I just leave it at that. Yeah, I think you've, you've written about that a couple of times back in, uh, newsletter 26 and 28. Um, yeah, well, I, I keep writing about Yeah. I was just going to say people can go back and read those right on your Substack. Yeah. Well, I don't remember exactly what those, but the whole archive of all my newsletters is there. So I've got kind of a, a main monthly newsletter. I do a lot of, you know, kind of daily, you know, post all the time, but like there's like a, a one big kind of main newsletter per month. It's in the newsletter tab. There's 75 of them. You can go look at them all. One thing I did notice, I mean, I don't know if 26, 20, exactly which one it was, but one of the things I pointed out is how grim and unappealing so many pastors make marriage sound. You know, Russell Moore had a book that came out a few years ago called The Storm-Tossed Family, and it's like this sort of like Van Gogh-ish looking book, and there's a house that's being tossed on the seas of the storm, and then, you know, they go through all the hardships of being married and like how difficult it is. And like, you know, it's really like, I'm like, man, that doesn't sound very good. Or, 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 you know, you'll have some, uh, you'll have Matt Chandler go on some rampage 
talking, men, why are you going to bed with so much energy? Don't you know you're supposed to go to bed completely wrung out, drained after serving your wife and kids and working all day and serving it like, or, uh, you know, Mark Driscoll is the same way. Hey guys, your, your priorities are going to be God, your wife, your kids, your job. You're not going to have time for hobbies. You're just going to have to get rid of your hobbies, get rid of your fishing pole, get rid of your tools. You're not going to have any. No fun what, allowed. What guy was, no, why would you want to get married? And it's like, you, you guys are just. And of course, they constantly berate husbands and fathers as failures. And right. You got to right. all go to, you know, this is the older generation, but we ought to all go to a stadium at the Promise Keepers and cry about how we're not keeping our promise. And, like, and they, they just make it sound so unappealing. They make it sound so unappealing. And I was thinking about that reading Russell Moore's book, and it, it sort of dawned on me. He mentioned that he had had to counsel literally hundreds of couples dealing with uh, infidelity. And I said, you know what? He's a pastor and like pastors, you know, couples only come talk to the pastor when there's a problem. Okay. And so these guys hear almost all bad news. Okay. So they get to do weddings, which is nice. And they do get to do baptisms, which is nice. But like most of the time, it's like they're counseling people in situations where there's a problem. So. I can understand why they focus on the negatives. Like, let me just tell you, like all the terrible stuff I hear all day, every day in my office. And so, but they, they have a hard time repping marriage. Uh, and I do think part of it is just an occupational hazard. All they hear is the bad things. Sure. Um, and, uh, and of course, um, there's the famous opening line of Anna Karena. Not all happy families are alike. All unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. There's just more variety of un- of ways to talk about things that are bad than there is a way to talk about things that are good. Sure. Oh, you know, I came home and had this amazing dinner with my wife and kids today. Well, how many times can you say that? <laughs> you know I, mean? so I do think there's an element of, uh, you know, it's sort of like it's, it's easier to talk about like the bad. Let me tell you about this horrible divorce I just saw. So we have to be cognizant of that. Uh, we have to be cognizant of that. There's a guy, uh, I think his name is John Gottman. He's a psychologist. He's the guy that claims he can tell within 15 minutes of watching a couple interact whether or not they're going to get a divorce with like 90% accuracy. Wow. And whether you believe his whole shtick or not, he's got this rule of thumb that has really stuck with me. He says, the secret to staying married has nothing to do with communication styles or roles or anything of that nature. All that matters is that you have five times more positive than negative interactions. And, you know, he talks about you got to avoid contempt. That's like you know, he talks about avoiding contempt. But basically, it's like if you hit this magic five to one ratio or better, you're going to stay married. And so I try to think about that. As, and maybe this is a rule of thumb for pastors of the people. It's like, you know, if we're going to talk about marriage. Uh, you know, maybe we should try to stay five nice things for every bad thing. You know, sure. or maybe we should, you know, that I don't I don't I don't always stick to that ratio. But I think a lot about. I want to be saying a lot of positive things because nothing is easier. I mean, like it would be sitting here. I could make a great blog of just posting nothing but takedowns of different pastoral things. And, you know, I, I got to do some of that. But like eventually you you become a, just a, you attract all negative people and, you know, you lose the positive agenda. So that's one reason I always said I want to have a very positive agenda uh, as well. So I think it's very, very easy to get sucked into the negative. Oh, for um, sure. So, like, one thing that I say, I, I I had a guy tell me this the other day. I was in New York and at an event, and I was chatting with this guy, and he's a single Christian guy in New York, and he's basically saying there just aren't any, you know, good women to marry. 
course, you hear the women say the same thing. Where have all the good men gone? It's like, oh, there's just nobody married. That's not true. The, I mean, it's certainly, um, you know, uh, certainly if, if you're a Christian man, there are many high-quality Christian women uh, that you could marry in the, in this world. That doesn't mean that, you know, necessarily they're going to be compatible with you or that they want to go out with you or, or whatever. There's things there, you know, so there are some, there is some winnowing. But this idea that and this is a popular idea just in, in kind of the secular society too, that the dating pool is toxic, the water's poisoned, there's no you know, there's no good men left, there's no good women left. I don't subscribe to that at all. I think it's very possible to find, you know, a high quality spouse who's a who's a, who's a Christian and a great person to be married to. I do think, um, especially as you get older, it is easier for men. From the standpoint that, you know, it's expected men will initiate. So if you're a woman and men are not asking you out on dates, it's a little harder. Like if you're a guy, I can just tell you, you guys, you just got to go ask women out on dates, buddy. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, so it's going to be a little, it's going to be a little harder. It's a little more work to generate interest if you're not getting interest if you're a woman, just because the, the, the way that we, we kind of expect the man to sort of initiate it. But I do think in the, the in terms of the, potential mating partners out there, there are good ones. There are a lot of good ones. You know, I, I think in my old church in New York City, you know, there were many women that, you know, I got to know there at least a little bit just from going to church to them. And they're saying, oh, I'm like, these are great people. They could, they would be great. They would make a great wife to people. So I think they're out there. Don't believe the hype that they're, you know, oh, the women are, all the women out there, they're just horrible feminist shrikes or whatever. This is not true. Not true. And, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of, there's plenty of opportunity out there. Yeah. That's encouraging. So on the note of trying to be more positive, um, and as we've established, there are many churches today who are, you know, a lot of singles, a lot of people are childless. How can, how can those people contribute to their church, their community in a way that, uh, that would strengthen the family, uh, and those generational ties? That's a good question. You know, I, I haven't really thought about it as much. I mean, I will say, if you look at the if you look at the New Testament and all the scriptures that talk about the benefits of being single, the reason to be single is to be able to be more dedicated in your service to God in your mission. Yes. And so, I think we sort of miss that part in the uh, talk about kind of like we need to welcome the singles more. It's not so we can eat more avocado toast brunches. Uh, it's not so we can, you know, enjoy going out to Broadway shows and doing all this stuff. It's supposed to be for the service guy. I've actually thought about it the reverse. Uh, you know, how can married people help, uh, you know, involve single people in their lives? And I think one way, I'm going to answer that question first. I think one way is just through hospitality and just inviting single people to your, like into your home, invite them over for dinner, you know, just have, you know, just have single people over to your house on occasion. And, um, you know, my wife used to, and I used to do that in New York. And uh, it went really well, and people very much appreciated you, you know, including them in kind of their lives. One of the things that I've that happens that I've noticed is, and this is another thing people don't realize is going to happen, is, okay, you're hanging out with your friends, you're 30, you're having fun in the city, they start getting married, yep. they start having kids. And so what happens is, uh, in your late 30s and in your 40s, social circles begin to bifurcate. And kind of the married people hang out in kind of the married families kind of milieu. And you end up with the single people more or less just hanging out with other single people. Mm-hmm. Birds so, of a feather situation. 
Yeah, yeah, you end up there. Like, so I, you know, you know, being being in my fifties, you know, I have a lot of friends who are in my fifties, and if I go look at the Facebook page of a fifty-something single, it is invariably pictures of them out to dinner with other fifty-something singles and things like that. And so they, they, you know, I think just you know having them be part of like a broader community and like in, and making sure that they can be included in kind of your your events um, or in your life, I think is I think that is important. Uh, I think that's, that's something that we could certainly do. Um, I, I think, cause I think when you're, when you're single, you, you do this idea that you end up in like a singles ghetto, you know, or you end up, you know, you're, you're lonely or whatever, it, it, you know, it, it is a risk. Um, but you know, but if you're single, I'd say the flip side is you just need, you need to, you know, work harder in order to get engaged in different things, right? So that you, that you, you maintain it, you know, there, you know, more volunteering, um, things of that nature and things that put you, you know, also that put you around other people that you might, uh, you might meet. I might even suggest, um, you know, one of the things that's become, uh, is written about a lot. I don't know how reliable the data is, is that Christians don't want to date people in their own church anymore. Hmm. I think it used to be pretty common for people to meet a spouse at church. Now I think people are very wary of dating anyone in their own church. So let's say you date someone in your church and it doesn't work out. What happens? You know, so yeah, I think see each other next week, rest. right? Yeah. So I think there's a, there's been that. And so getting involved in, um, parachurch ministries or things of that nature, maybe there's some, you know, um, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, like maybe there's like a, a soup kitchen ministry or so, some ministry that's not a ministry of the church, but it's sort of independent that other people there, you could get involved with them. And that'll also raise your opportunity to meet people, potentially meet singles who are not in your uh, church that that you may be able to go. Maybe find find other events uh, to go to that are that are sort of that there. Um, so I think there, are, I think those are little you know little strategies uh, that uh, you know that you could uh, that you could take on. But I think especially just as you get older in general. And and this is especially true for men. You really have to lean into working hard intentionally to maintain relationships with people because it's very sure. easy to just, you know, especially men don't usually make a lot of new friends like after cut of that. And so you, you lose friends over time and you don't have new ones. Is men often are end up very socially isolated and you got to like really lean into not letting that happen. It's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should probably, uh, kind of bring this in for the landing as they um as they say on the theology podcast i believe yeah um you've been on that a couple times uh oh, yeah. what uh do you have anything any final thoughts you'd like to say and if not uh where can our listeners connect with you well again i would tell people to go to go to aaronren.com a-a-r-o-n-r-e-n-n.com sign up for my newsletter there's a ton of free content there there's a there is a paid tier but don't sign up for it get the free stuff and then if you decide you really like it, uh, then you can sign up, you know, for the paid tier later. But I would love for you to, to read the monthly newsletters. And, you know, I try to give people sort of insight and analysis and, and thinking that they just can't get anywhere else. Uh, and so I, I really try to do that. And I really want to help people, uh, help people adapt, you know, to the, the 21st century. You know, and, and when we are in kind of this negative world where, you know, things are not great for the church. And one thing I would just say is um, people get older and they may be single and it's a very great temptation to think it's too late. I screwed up. And it may actually be that that's the case, but it's probably not 
probably not the case. You know, I was in my 40s and, um, you know, went through three terrible years of life. And I, I had to completely change everything about the way I live my life, everything about the way that I thought about what it meant to be a man and everything I had to think about relationships. It took me years to do it. It transformed my life, right, for the better. You, you can get in the gym and start getting into shape, right? You can do those things. You can learn what drives attraction. You can learn to maximize, you know, your things. You can start putting yourself out there. Maybe, you know, maybe you won't have kids or whatever, but maybe you'll still be able to get married. Uh, there was a woman uh, who uh, I think she was the founder of the uh, Redeemer Center for Faith and Work. Her name was, uh, I think it was Catherine Leary, maybe at the time. And I think she was in her 50s and she'd been a tech executive and she was not married, never married, had kids. And then she got married in her 50s uh, to a great man. And uh, now her name is Catherine Alsdorf. I think that's her married name. And so it wasn't too late for her. She ended up having a you know a great marriage. Now she did not have children of her own uh, in that that marriage. But this idea it would be easy to say, oh, "I'm 50. I'm single. I'm never going to get married." That's not necessarily true. You could still get married in your 50s, uh, even. And um, you know, and so uh, obviously, you know, that's not ideal. Uh, like I would say, doing what I did, don't don't do that. You know, don't do what I don't live life the way I lived it, uh, you know, uh, you know, until until relatively recently. You know, but I think that the, I think there's hope and change. Change is possible. Change for yourself is possible. Changing your circumstances is possible. And, um, you know, so don't lose hope for the future. Don't lose hope for the future. Take action, certainly. Pray, certainly. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, don't 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 certainly don't become hopeless. That's a good word. That's 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 a good way to end. Uh, very encouraging. Well, thank you for listening to Death and Glory podcast. We hope this episode edified you. Please take a moment to go to your favorite podcast platform, like and review the episode, and share it with your friends. Uh, also, if you're a fan of the show and would like to support Death and Glory, please visit our Patreon page and search Patreon slash Puritan Pub Media. Aaron, thanks for thanks for coming on with us, brother. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To Canaan's land, I'm on my way where the soul of man never dies. My darkest night will turn today, the soul of man never dies. Dear friends, there'll be no sad farewell, there'll be no tear dim nights. Where all is peace and joy and love, where the soul of man never dies. A rose is growing there for me, where the soul of man never dies. And I will spend eternity, where the soul of man never dies. Dear friends, there'll be no sad farewell, there'll be no tear-dim nights. Where all is peace and joy and love, where the soul of man never dies.